0: you have a Bible or a copy of one on your phone, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Unexpected things happen. When I first talked to, with Christopher about joining us tonight, he had other plans, and then at some point they changed, and I'm really glad uh, because it's great to hear uh, him playing the cello and that, uh, how that really brings everything together. So thank you. And I'm glad the rest of you are here, too. (laughs) Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And he called his name Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for the Spirit of Christ, who was at work in the prophets to predict the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. We thank you that those prophecies were fulfilled and that you sent apostles, evangelists, and pastors and lay people to tell us. We thank you that through this word preached to us, you gave us new life by joining us to Jesus in faith. If we have tasted your goodness in the word, give us a longing for more. Even this evening, help us to understand what it means to grow up into salvation as we listen this evening. Christ's name, amen. Now, I know that some of you have probably been listening to Christmas music since before Thanksgiving. (laughs) I'm here to confess to you all that I am not one of those people. Uh, You will not generally find me listening to Christmas music. My administrative assistant will admit that this week I did listen to Christmas music. But I find most of it to be sort of weightless, sort of trivial. I'm not talking about the the carols that we sang this evening, the hymns that we sang this evening, but more the the things like, uh, baby, it's cold outside. Um, (laughs) Some of you might like that song. I'm not, uh, you know, we all have different tastes. It's okay. In fact, on the way here, they played the, the McCartney song, the one McCartney Christmas song. That has to be one of the worst songs ever written. (laughs) For me, though, I really enjoyed listening to the Brian Stetzer Orchestra do a bunch of its uh, Christmas music. And even though the lyrics were trite in most cases, except, of course, when they sang, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, um, that rockabilly guitar, that old Gretsch just cranking out, that's... What gets me. But there's one non-swing uh, rockabilly song that gets me, and that is Michael Card's song, Emmanuel, where he draws together from this passage, he goes back into Isaiah, but then also reaches in the other direction to Romans 8, and takes those two threads and brings them together as they were intended to be brought together. Because that's exactly what Matthew is implying here in this text as he relates the birth of Jesus. Now, of course, he's not relaying the actual birth of Jesus. Uh, The details of that are given more in Luke's gospel. But what's leading up to the birth of Jesus, uh, Matthew gives us. And part of it hinges upon this promise that is found in Isaiah chapter 7, and we should pause and think, what was this original promise of Emmanuel, God with us, that was given in Isaiah 7? And so, like Michael Card, I'm going to reach back a little bit briefly and grab that string and pull it into the present. What's going on, however, as we see in verses 18 through 21, is summarized by Matthew saying that this happened, all of these things that he's just been talking about in the last couple of verses, all of these happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And he doesn't name Isaiah uh, personally, but by the text that he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We know exactly what he means. So what Matthew is saying here is intended to, to be understood as, one, something that God had prophesied, and two, something that God has brought to pass because he had previously prophesied that it would happen. And what he had promised... What he had prophesied was that this betrothed virgin, who was pregnant mysteriously, was a result of God's doing. Matthew points to the divine origin of the prophecy. He, he, he wants us to see the divine origin of its fulfillment just as strongly. So let's see, what was prophesied back then? What happened at that point in time was that Judah was facing opposition. They were greatly upset, concerned, terrified even, because their northern cousins, Israel, and one of their enemy enemies, Syria, had joined forces and were marching towards Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they felt that there was no way that they would be able to withstand the onslaught of these armies. They had heard, perhaps through the grapevine, that their intention was really to remove Ahaz as king of Judah and put their own man in so that together the three nations can join together and free themselves, so they hoped, from oppressive Assyria. What? was Ahaz to do. And in fact, Ahaz did almost nothing, because what happens in Isaiah 7 is that God tells Isaiah, go and find him, and speak to him. And so, Isaiah seeks out the distraught King Ahaz, who fears that his kingdom will soon come to an end. And Isaiah offers a sign to verify the message that he gives. And the message that he gives is that God is going to deal with your enemies. Don't worry about them. They're not going to overcome you. Soon, in fact, uh, Syria, I'm sorry, Hmm. Samaria or Israel will become nothing. They won't even be able to be a people. They will be so destroyed by what's going to happen. So fear not. And he offers Ahaz a sign to verify that what God has said he would do, he's going to do. Ahaz, in a bit of false humility, says, I don't want to test God. Now, he's wise in a sense. That's a scriptural thing, not to test God. But by saying this in this context, what he's doing is actually testing God, because he's resisting the word of God, the offer of God, the promise of God, as though he didn't need it. He's struck with some level of unbelief as this comes, but Isaiah presses on anyway, and he tells him that a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. There's a lot of controversy over that word virgin. There shouldn't be. When we look at the Old Testament, and we look at how it's used throughout uh, the Old Testament, it is almost exclusively used for young, marriageable women. Okay, Not just young women, but those who have not been married. Virgins. Matthew clarifies that, so to speak, or he allows the Septuagint to clarify it because the word that is used in the Greek to translate that word, Alma, does mean virgin. And so while it shouldn't be very controversial, unfortunately it is as human beings try to evade the reality of God's word and God's work in history. What? Isaiah was promising, is that there was a virgin, that one that was known to Ahaz, one who was going to have a child, one that the child was going to be named Emmanuel, God with us. The point of it was the timing. It was not about the miraculous nature. She was probably going to be married and have a child in that particular instance. It was the timing that was pertinent in that moment, Judah would suffer, in part, for Ahaz's unbelief, but God would still deliver her from her enemies. And God did deliver her from her warful cousins in the north, as well as Syria, their other enemy to the north and east of Judah. But... What Matthew brings to the front here is that there's an even greater fulfillment of this that is not a sign. Remember, the first one was merely a sign, but now we have the reality that comes into being and in what takes place in this. Fulfilling God's word in a way that his people never imagined it would be fulfilled. That this particular betrothed virgin, one who was engaged to be married but had not yet begun to live with her husband, was found to be pregnant. Now, that, of course, in that day and age, just as it would be in many circles today, would still be scandalous. How did this happen? Well, the ordinary person would think something wrong happened that she had been unfaithful to Joseph before them coming together as husband and wife. And so Joseph thought, one, I should not marry her, but two, I do not want to expose her to public shame, and so he purposed in his heart to divorce her quietly, to try and Save some shred of dignity for this woman who has most likely broken his heart, or so he thinks. But what he hears when, this is part of the interesting part of the text, an angel appears. But this angel appears in a dream. Why the angel comes in a dream and doesn't just show up like the angel showed up to Zachariah in the temple, we're not really sure, and it really doesn't matter, but in in this dream... He is approached by an angel who tells him what's really going on, and Matthew, stressing the reality of the divine origin of this child, three times says, "From the Holy Spirit." Just in case you'd miss it the first time, Joseph or audience who's reading Matthew's account of this, "From the Holy Spirit." This is not a child that is born out of immorality, but rather this is a child that is born out of holiness. Such as Mike O'Card could write, a human baby bearing undiminished deity. This child is not a sign of Messiah. This child is the Messiah who in the flesh and blood is going to be God present with his people. This child, this Messiah, is going to come to defend God's people from his enemies, both earthly and spiritual. And we sang about some of that in the various hymns. uh, There are at least two of them that are not, at least two, probably three, that sang of Satan, the great spiritual enemy of God and therefore of God's people. And Jesus has come to put an end to him. But we also see earthly enemies. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see the king, Herod, who fears another king and makes himself an enemy of this child. And there will be many other earthly enemies. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, and others will rise up against this Messiah. Joseph was intended to believe this incredible promise That was given by the angel. Joseph was intended to believe that he is intended to protect Mary and he's intended to protect this unexpected Messiah. He's not to abandon them, but he is to bring them into his home, treat them as his own, and protect them. What an incredible calling! which is a different Michael Card song that is equally profound from my perspective. Joseph was intended to believe that God was not just with his people, but was with Joseph in this child that he is now intended to raise. That's part of what should humble us. The reality is that a creature, Mary, is bearing the Creator. The reality that a creature, Joseph, is intended to teach the real image of God, what it means to be an image of God. Neither of these two people, I'm sure, felt up to the task of what was happening in the reality of the Incarnation. But as I think of this, I wonder, are we like Joseph, who believed in the greater promise of God that was revealed, or are we more like Ahaz, who doesn't really believe that God will come and deal with His enemies? Matthew wants us to know that Emmanuel is with us against our enemies. Emmanuel is with us in the person of Jesus against our enemies. But as I think of that, there, there's a rub that kind of comes to me, and, and perhaps it comes to you as well. And, and that is this, how can Jesus before us when we too are disobedient and therefore make ourselves to be as enemies by our rebellion. We joked around the table at a men's lunch recently about how hard it would be to be alive for 650 years. Say, he knows. And I... They thought I was really talking about I don't want to be married to the same woman for 650 years. But what I, what I tried to explain was I, I can't, I'm 53 and already I'm tired of my sin. I could not imagine being 650 and still being even more tired of my sin and my disobedience. That would seem to be an existential reality too great for me to bear. I don't know how Noah did it. Or any of the others. They apparently had much greater faith uh, than I do. And So there's that reality. I I recognize uh, that at times I make myself God's enemy. So if Jesus comes to deal with God's enemies, I might be in trouble. We see this struggle with sin uh, in 2 Peter 2. He talks about righteous Lot, and, and first there's the reality that God rescued righteous Lot, so that's the first part. Emmanuel, in a sense, was with Lot, but what I want to really hit on is the fact that righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so uh, the focus here is not on, on Lot's sin, but the reality of how hard it is to see other people sin. And I'm just, I'm just tossing mine on top of that. See something similar in Habakkuk chapter one, where Habakkuk asks in his first prayer, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? He's wondering what's taking God so long to deal with the sin of his people in Judah. He's wondering why judgment has not yet fallen upon the people of Judah. Habakkuk grasps the enormity of sin and that God's people who are supposed to be righteous are anything but. Isn't the coming of Messiah bad news for all men and women because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Do you understand what perhaps it's easy to miss when we read this? And how is it that this child is not part of the same plight that we experience? And that's another reason why Matthew repeats this idea that he from the Holy Spirit. He's not born of normal generation. In other words, he does not share in Adam's guilt and condition. Ken can't die for my sins. But here is one who does not have his own sins to pay for and therefore can rescue me from my sins. He is to be called by Joseph Jesus or Joshua. A name that was common in the Old Testament, and one reason it was common is not just because we have the, the great leader of God's people to take over Jericho, but because it means Yahweh saves. It's the cry of faith. I mean it's it's the, the two word summary of the entire Bible. The Lord saves. But this child is not named that symbolically. He is the one who saves. This child that looks so ordinary, just like any other baby that has just come out of the womb, is different because this baby does bear that undiminished deity. He is the Yahweh who saves. Because we see Matthew points us to this, and he says, He will save His people from their sins. He's not just telling people how they might be saved. He is the one who himself will save his people from their sins. This child is from the Holy Spirit, and this child, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to save his people, though they have been disobedient. And so, in other words, while Christmas could have been a horrifying thing, it ends up being the greatest news ever. Because God visits in mercy and grace in the person of Jesus. For those of you who are from Desert Springs, you've probably heard me say this, bring this text up far too many times. It has become one of my favorite passages from Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, again, later on he says, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And so we, we do not save ourselves from our sins. We, we don't make up for our sins, but we have a Savior who bleeds and dies to rescue us from the wrath of God and who invites us to trust Him as that great gift. Now, Joseph is not told how Jesus is going to do this. Not sure how perceptive he was in terms of uh, his understanding of the, the types and, and shadows of the Old Testament and whether he was able to put all of those pieces together, but it doesn't really matter how much of it he was able to put together, because he's so, in some ways, as we studied in First Peter, like the prophets, wondering what all this means, but believing that it's true, like Joseph. We have to trust what God has told us, that this Jesus is the one who can save us from our sins. We understand the rest of the story, so to speak, but we recognize that there's a reason God did not explicitly tell Joseph. Perhaps that would be too much of a burden for Joseph to bear. I can barely bear the fact that my children will grow up and move out of the house. That, you know, they'll get jobs and stuff and have kids. But to think of a child that I raise, because like Joseph, I've adopted, okay, that one of these children would be a martyr, it would be, While I would embrace it at the time, knowing it now would be too much to bear. And perhaps it is God's mercy upon Joseph that he doesn't share everything with Joseph. And it's often similarly a mercy upon us that God does not tell us our future or the future of our children. But like Joseph, we need to trust that what he said is true. Like Joseph, we have to trust that God has declared us to also be sinners who are in need of salvation, but also trust that this Jesus who was born, whose birth we're celebrating, is the one who has carried our sin and removed it from us so that we can be welcome in the presence of God. Like Joseph, we have to trust what that child was going to do would rescue us. That rather than us seeking after God, God comes looking for us. And we see that message as early as Genesis 3. For they're hiding in the bushes and God comes and looks for them. Where are you? And here in Matthew 2 God is again coming for his people looking for them with a where are you because i have come for my people. We don't have to do with a god who's hiding uh, who's who's running away from us uh, but we have a god who runs toward us when we hide and he runs towards his people not to punish them, but to embrace them because his son has been punished for them. That is very different from every other religion, it is unique. Joseph, it says, when he woke up from his dream, did what he was commanded. He took the woman into his home. And as we see from Luke's account, uh, when the census comes, he doesn't leave her behind. He, He brings her with him into Bethlehem so that they can be counted in the census. And he's there for the birth of Jesus. By naming this child, Joseph is adopting this boy as his very own. And in so doing, He's embracing God's plan of salvation for his people. And so we see that Emmanuel is for us against our sins. In other words, Emmanuel saves us from our sins. That's one of the ways he's with us. Although it makes no sense that a God would do a thing like that. Well, As I mentioned, I'm, I struggle with Christmas songs because many of them seem to be sentimental and sappy. Again, apologies if you love them. Um, although I have been known to say, sing, let it snow, let it snow. Um, but Emmanuel gets to the heart of Christmas. The fulfillment... Of one of the greatest promises in Scripture, that God will be with us and deliver us from our enemies. But to do that, Jesus must first deal with our sins so that we're no longer His enemies, but His friends. And so Christmas is about the greatest gift that we could ever receive pardon and protection. God accomplished this by sending His beloved Son to humble Himself and become a man like you and me. That should be something that we struggle to understand and yet something that we treasure in our hearts like Mary did. And so I'm glad you've come this evening as part of that treasuring in your hearts. don't let the hubbub of Christmas crowd out all the treasuring. Perhaps make a little more space for the treasuring of God's gift without which all the rest burns. Let's pray. Father, in light of our disobedience, of our exchanging the truth for a lie, of our pride and our fear, of our doubting your very character, your goodness and your love, doubting your righteousness even while we fear your justice because we're complicated, messed up people. Let this truth of Emmanuel sink deep within us. Deeper each day. That while we're worse than we could ever imagine, we are more loved than we can ever imagine. And that we are more loved in Christ. so that we're able by faith to embrace the One who has embraced us. Help us to grasp this, to love this, to rejoice in this, to say what a wondrous thing our God has done and to speak of this truth, of these wondrous things, to our brothers in the great assembly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.